The famous Trappist monk Thomas Merton is reported to have claimed that the last thing any community wants is a saint. Saints are disruptive. There's no doubt a certain amount of rhetorical exaggeration in his saying here, but there's also something to it. Most of us are aware that we are not saints, that we sin, and therefore we are in need of others' patience and forgiveness. We are also perhaps too aware of others' failings, and we are no doubt aware of the patience that we attempt to exercise with others' bad habits and moral lapses. I say that we're perhaps too aware because one of the easiest ways to excuse my own moral compromises is to find them minor in comparison to other people's sins. But what happens when a saint enters my life, someone whose purity of heart makes my sins appear all the worse? This is the test that the town of Nazareth receives this morning. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, appears in the synagogue. This is his own hometown. After a bit of an absence, after all, during which he was baptized by John and then began to minister along the shores of Galilee and in places like Capernaum. So St. Luke is telling us about Jesus' first homecoming after his, the beginning of his ministry. He's a changed man. He suddenly has a reputation. Last week, when he tied his ministry to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of liberty and healing, he got a pretty good reception, and I suppose the locals were pleased enough that homegrown talent was making something of himself, offering encouraging words and so on. But today, alas, some murmuring sets in. Yeah, after all, if the people at Capernaum were good enough for healing, what, what about us? Why not us? After all, he lived here in Nazareth for 30 years. And apparently, almost nobody noticed anything particularly special about it. This says something about Nazareth, perhaps. So there might be a bit of irritation at the lack of perception among the locals. And this incomprehension reminds us of another saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus compares himself to Elijah and Elisha, two prophets who ministered to Gentiles and found themselves frequently at odds with the kings of Israel. Prophets are persons who are addressed by God and then sent to speak to us, to interpret the present situation, and to warn of its consequences, but also to promise God's mercy if we repent. So prophets are difficult people because they wake us up from moral mediocrity and call us to repent of what otherwise might be hidden or ignorant sins. And again, always to hope for God's mercy and grace. Now, we as baptized members of the body of Christ have all received something of the gift of prophecy. So who are the prophets in my midst? And how might I tell? If there is a prophet in our midst, the gospel is warning us today that we might not recognize him or her precisely because God's word might disrupt our familiar routines and expectations. The people of Nazareth, Nazareth figured they knew plenty about Jesus, the son of Joseph, all they needed to know. So how are they going to respond to his new reputation? 
Now, we generally find life easier to deal with when the people around us are predictable and don't change too much. And generally, that's a good thing because people do change, and not all change is for the better. But part of our own maturation as Christians is learning how to, to negotiate the changes that others and ourselves go through, being open to potentials, being welcoming to new developments when uh, they offer something good for us. It's not easy, though, to do this because this often forces us to change our perception of other people and of ourselves. It forces us to change our perception of life and of God. For example, I have three younger sisters. I'm the oldest in my family. And by the time my two youngest sisters got married and began to have children, it had been dawning on me for a while that they are not the 11- and 12-year-olds that I had left behind when I went to college. They had changed a lot, and a lot of that change took place when I wasn't around. So I had to kind of learn who they were anew every time I met them. Motherhood changed them even more. And learning to encounter a new person whom I've known all my life, uh, this new person emerging, it takes a lot of attentiveness and self-forgetfulness because I have all these categories that I had for 11 or 12 years of who these two girls are, Right? And it's tempting because it's so easy to interpret the new situation as an annoying departure from the old one and for me to continue to treat my sisters as if they need to defer to me as the oldest or they need my unsolicited advice. Uh, They don't know certain things about the world yet that I do, of course. And in fact, now, after being mothers for a long time, working jobs out in the world, which I haven't had to do for a long time, they know all kinds of things that I don't know, right? And I could learn a lot from them if I allow them to be who they've become and don't box them in to being the person that I knew or that is comfortable for me. The great Jewish philosopher Abraham Heschel had a wonderful phrase that captures this dynamic. And he was writing about the prophets, actually. The principle to be kept in mind, he writes, is to know what we see rather than to see what we know. So when we strive to know what we see, we are open to changing our perception of the things around us, the reality that's encountering us. This involves admitting a certain amount of ignorance, amount of limitation. This admits the need for growth in myself. When I see what I know, I reduce the world to categories that are already familiar to me. I reduce the persons around me to the limited ideas I already have of them, and I don't change. I don't grow. So when we hear the gospel read, for example, we've all heard these gospel passages many times, it's easy to think, yeah, I know that one already. But do I? Do I really? Am I trying to get to know the gospel rather Or am I limiting the gospel to what I already know? Or will I be willing to admit to myself that God's word is always greater than my own heart? And therefore, I need to exert myself over and over again to a deeper understanding, to listen anew to God speaking afresh through these scriptures. So similarly with those with whom I live. Uh, We all know the difficulties of allowing persons in our families and our communities to change and grow. Do I impose limits on others based on what I think I already know about them? 
how they should act, what they really mean by that. Probably most of us do this. It's easy to do it. Again, I'm sure we're all aware when others do that to us, when they box us in and limit their perception of us to what they think they already know about us and fail to understand what we're actually saying or doing. Well, we can't change others to get them to understand us. And let's face it, it's difficult enough for us to understand ourselves. But we can change our own habits of attention, given the warnings that are given to us in the gospel today, so as to open ourselves to God's influence speaking to us in every encounter we have each day, even with those who are most familiar to us. There's one last disquieting inference from today's gospel. So Jesus no longer lives in Nazareth or Capernaum today, I'm speaking of now, today. He does in a sense, but he dwells in the tabernacles on our altars and in the tabernacles of our hearts. So he's very familiar to us. We bear him with us all the time. We frequently meet him very directly in the Holy Eucharist. How tempting it is to think that we understand our Lord, to think we understand the Eucharist, at least well enough for now. And when perhaps the Lord reveals a bit more of this inexhaustible mystery of his Godhead, of his presence in the Eucharist. Am I listening? Am I ready to hear that? Am I ready to admit my own ignorance and limitation and launch out in faith in order not to miss out on his visitation to me? After all, he is an old friend. He is my Redeemer, but I don't fully know him yet. Am I more like the people of Capernaum, whose faith Jesus praises over and over again? In their weakness and misery, they sought out the compassion of Jesus. Or am I more like the people of Nazareth, cynical about God's power to bring about anything new among my family members or brothers in community? We can answer this to a large extent by whether we truly are striving to love. Am I patient and kind or rude and inflated? Do I brood over injuries or do I bear all things and hope all things? How can I cooperate with God's grace this week to grow in faith, hope, and love? Because perhaps this would be the first step on the road to deeper sanctity so that I can disturb, in all the best ways, those Thomas Mertons in my life.